1: welcome back to the Welsh History podcast my name is Jonathan and today we're doing something a little different as we are interviewing Glenn Longwell on his book The Dead Letters um, and why we kind of had this conversation in the first place or the reason why we ended up uh, discussing this idea of talking about this book is because hello uh, I guess a couple a few months ago now not a couple of months ago a few months ago now I uh, they were very kind and had me on their podcast and and we had a long chat about a number of different things. And, and one of the things that we discussed a bit was, was your book. And uh, I think we had a brief discussion kind of where some of the ideas and and the originating process was. And and one of the things that kind of came across was uh, at least from my perspective, as you had been talking about it being a, um, uh, Kind of originating out of, like, Roman Britain, is that correct?
0: Yeah, um, most of it, you know, down to the, a lot of it actually is just Welsh from, like, the, the Roman Britain era. And then I do, um, one of the peoples in my series, uh, that they do, like, a high king structure, which is very similar to how the Welsh and the Scots did it after the Romans left
1: right
0: i kind of built it around that at least for the initial governmental structure of the uh the mountain people
1: right and i guess just for those unfamiliar with the book if you could just kind of give us sort of a a, an outline i guess of kind of what the book's about
0: uh yeah absolutely it is a a darkish fantasy novel um i definitely wouldn't recommend reading it if you are faint of heart and don't like profanity but it is um it's based in, on a continent <clears throat> in a fantasy world where there are basically three groups of people. There's the uh, Fuertesians, which are like a dominant power that invaded this continent, which is known as Azuela's Gift. And they have been bullying on um, the natives of the land who uh, live in the other half of the continent, which is all mountainous terrain for the most part. And that is known as Lazarus Leitmes. And they... Uh, The reason it's called as whale's gift is they pray to a river god. He is like the only god in their pantheon. But all of the, you know, there is a pantheon of gods. It's just that not, and they're all in the same pantheon, but not all of the same people recognize the same gods as being as powerful. And for the natives, they are all about the river god. And their high-ruling family has been um, a succession of people who are descended from Azuela, the river god. And the basic gist of the story is the princess of the uh, king, who later names himself Emperor, of Fuerte, she is married off to the high king of lazarus Miz as sort of a peace cow. But as you read in through the book, you realize that it's just filled with people scheming and scamming. And she finds herself basically adopting these people's culture and falling in love with it in many ways. And if that doesn't grab your attention, people ride bears into battle. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) um... I uh, I was gonna say, there's also, um, a rather, uh, non conventional naming style pattern that I adopted for the natives of Lazare Slate Miz, They uh they try to have like a Z and, you know, Zwell or some form of as name in their name. So a lot of the kings have similar names. Cause like the High King is Low Zeal, then there's Lonez, and then there's Low Uh so, you know, it 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 serves a purpose, but a few readers have told me that they had to keep flipping back to to remember who is who so i think if i re-release it i will be putting a chart to make it a little simpler right
1: right uh so what i i guess one question i'd ask kind of what inspired you to look at this kind of structure and this kind of uh um storyline i guess what what stories well, or history or whatever inspired that thought
0: it kind of, it's burned from a few different things. Um, I mean, one, I've always been a huge history fan. I I especially love the uh, history of the island of Britain. And when I was younger, and I was in college, I was a big English history major. And then as I kind of got more and more into the Welsh history, I thought, you know, like, wow, this is, you know, this is really interesting stuff prior to them just being swallowed by England, and even to a to an extent afterwards. But the what I thought really jumped out at me was the, you know, the pre-Roman Britons, the Dark Ages, and then the, uh, just the the fighting nature that they possessed when Rome invaded and then later when the uh, Angles and Saxons and the Jutes came over, or at least, you know, some of them fought. That's obviously a matter of a lot of debate these days. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that a lot. And, you know, I have Welsh and Irish and Scottish ancestry, so that to that degree i kind of connected with it right and then obviously i don't know if you're familiar but there was a cartoon in the 90s by uh, greg Wiseman called gargoyles
1: mm-hmm. Yep.
0: <clears throat> and uh they had macbeth as one of their main characters and they got really into the scottish uh fan you know structure or at least as much as what a children's cartoon would with the high kings and the clans and this and that and I really thought that was kind of cool. And then when I was reading um, the Warlord trilogy by Bernard Cornwell, which is a trilogy he wrote of historical fiction based around King Arthur. And so, you know, it's it's got a lot of the classic bits of, uh, you know, the you know, Caradoc and Lancelot and all those guys are in there. He's got his knights. But there are kings in this. And Arthur was essentially the the reigning high king throughout this trilogy. And I read that maybe about five years ago now. And that's kind of what gave me the base structure um, for when I sat down and finally started writing the dead letters. Because I had, I've been working on the idea since high school, but I really didn't know where I wanted to take it. And I just had a bunch of like silly short stories that I eventually, uh, as I started writing it and mapping out how I wanted the story to go, I was able to include a lot of the aspects that I had learned and thought of throughout the years. And a lot of writing the book involved... uh, researching welsh and scottish history to an extent that i did not know i had in me before attempting
1: right okay and i guess uh from from our lister standpoint um what uh what drew you i guess specifically you know which stories or or which part of of welsh history might have been sort of the things that you kind of focused in on i know you mentioned the arthurian legends but was there other stories
0: yeah, I mean, I I mixed it around a lot. I actually, um, for all intents and purposes, the main character, Rebecca, a lot of her story was inspired to me by Boudicca, or the Boudicca, or Boudicca, I don't know what...
1: Boudicca you know. is probably the correct way to say it, yeah.
0: that's I've always thought Boudicca sounded too Romanized, actually, we talked about that in last week's episode. Right. Um, much like I always thought Car- uh, Caractacus, or whatever, sounded... Like that couldn't have been his, his Roma or his uh, British name. Right. But uh, yeah, so she was, I've always thought she was a fascinating character since I knew who she was. And so I knew when I started writing this, that I wanted to have uh, a strong female protagonist. And once I kind of settled on Welsh as being my underlying theme, I knew that was the one that I was going to, going to try to channel as much as possible. Um, and then other than that, it's not, a lot of it is just kind of taking like my favorite bits in history and throwing them in there. Like I do, uh, there's a lot of war bowmen. There's a man that has, he conquers a, you know, he's a usurper, which is just based on any time from, you know, when the Danes were invading, when the, everybody was just, uh, usurping and, uh, supplanting Kings left and right, um, and he uses war bowmen, which is at this point, like nobody else has seen them. And that's I mean, that's the English military. But a lot of the ones that they employed were were Welsh because that was how the peasants hunted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. Um, now, did you. OK, so. Uh, I know from from reading the book, uh, it it's a little it's a kind of a series of it it feels almost like a it starts out as sort of an indiana jones type adventure initially where you have sort of an archaeologist and and finding these these letters effectively is this something that you had plotted out as sort of the idea of how it would begin and sort of from the perspective of this archaeologist finding this information
0: yeah i thought um I just thought it would be really cool to do something like that. And I had just got done reading about them um, discovering a bunch of new hill forts and some stuff in the hill forts. And I'd read about this farmer that found, uh, uh, I think they were spearheads from like the maybe five hundreds or four hundreds or whatever that belong. Or no, I'm sorry. Uh, from right around the Roman the Roman invasion, and uh, he he didn't know what they were obviously, and I guess that's just things that people find out in farms out there in the country of England and Wales. And uh, I thought that was kind of cool, and so I kind of went from there. Because I'm glad you read it, uh huh. <laughs> and you know, a, a lot of what uh, the um, he was doing when he was out there was talking to the locals because that I figured was going to be the best way to kind of incorporate those cool little things that I had read about, like with people just finding it in their backyard Mm -hmm. and, and making him the archeologist seemed the best way because I really wanted to write something, uh, that, that worked in layers because, you know, you, he comes in with uh, a broad understanding of what he's going to get, but in reality he's complete, couldn't be more wrong in what he, what he thought to what he eventually learns and I also had an idea of just kind of writing somebody who's so in love with their work that they kind of start to lose their sanity because everything is working against them. Right. And So that's, you know, I, I decided I was going to write it with, um, with him having like a, a prologue and epilogue and an interlude. And I was going to implement that and, all three of the books that I'm going to work on so that he has his own storyline going as well and it kind of keeps you on where the current status of the kingdom is and then that way it, it allows the reader to fill in the gaps because the story that we're going to be covering the Rebecca story is not the the end to lead where he is but you know there's going to be some just like in real history you have some stuff that you're very you know confident happened and then there's some some fuzzy areas and then you have some firsthand accounts, you know, 200 years later to fill it in.
1: Right, right. Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah we're living that message right now in in the Welsh History podcast cuz a lot of our uh, source material ends up being separated from the original stories by in some cases hundreds of years and and you sort of have to live with that from a from a historical perspective and hope it's right but sometimes it gets proven inaccurate (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know because archaeologists find things which kind of point to different conclusions sometimes the archaeology can can mislead you too because you can find things in the ground that say one thing but then as you sort of piece things together it it may change over time obviously as different perspectives and different understandings come about Uh, i know one thing we've talked about a little bit is the idea that you will see archaeologists insisting that someone's a woman or a man because of the width of their hip or or the way their orbital bone might be or various things to do with their teeth and over the years there becomes more and more question about how reliable those kind of things are Uh, and so just because someone has a narrow hip doesn't necessarily make them a man or a woman And so you have those kind of questions now because the assumption that you get in archaeology previously was based on how people were buried. And a lot of times back in those days before Christianity came along, people were buried with things. And so we just assumed based on, okay, well, this one person has narrow hips. They're buried with what looks like knitting needles and brooches and things like that. They must obviously be a woman until they find something else that points out that this might be a man and now all of a sudden you've got a very confusing message under the ground (laughs) so even (laughs) in archaeology nothing's straightforward nothing is as simple as it seems so yeah i think having a little gray area is always good in your storyline so with that i guess the other question i should ask is is which sort of like what authors or, or stylistically kind of I, I know reading it, it it was a little different at least initially from what I expected is that because something you kind of thought about or is it something that you've been inspired by other people's writings
0: well the initial structure um, you know actually a lot of it was from when I was reading A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin because he has his chapters uh, very similar to, to the at least broad format of my own where it's um uh you know each character has their own chapter and i liked that because i thought it was a good way of especially for what i was trying to do with the gray area i thought it'd be a good way of kind of giving you the story and the events that are happening but you know you as the reader are forced to decide who's good who's not good who you like who you don't like um you know, and if the person that's telling you if the narrator is reliable or if it's biased, which it obviously is almost always biased, and then you kind of have to read through the lines of the chapter to see like how much of what they're telling you is accurate and how much is just them being, uh, you know, full of themselves or too hard on themselves or whatever. Right. Right. And so that was, yeah, that to me, I just thought that that <clears throat> if I could figure out a way to combine what I liked about uh, his writing style to my own, it would, be, uh, it would work out well. And I also liked, I don't know if you noticed it, but um, the first chapter for all the characters is just labeled as what their, their book was, whether it was the sign on the front or the color or something that separated it from the rest because it's supposed to kind of be like as if he were compiling this for his own use. So you're looking at it uh, basically through his own notes. So even what you're reading is theoretically the sifted versions of what he's you know keeping.
1: Right, right, yeah, that did come across. I was I was picking that up as I was looking at it, and I had noticed as as it went along, kind of how the structure was built. So I appreciated that. Yeah, it it did give it a little bit of cohesion. Well, thank you. Uh, and okay, so I guess another question I would ask at this stage is is how. How long did it take you to write?
0: Um, well, it took me about a year to write the book and then about another year to edit and fine-tune it just because of my writing method, at least for that one. I hadn't really... De- I'd written short stories and I'd written this and that, but I'd never tried to sit down and write an entire novel or at least not successfully. Uh, so when I wrote it, I just kind of wrote it. You know, I, I wrote the the vibe that I was trying to... Get across for each character in the story, and then when I went through and read it, you know, I realized there was however many grammatical errors and spelling errors, and I, you know, uh, maybe I harped too much on one character being angry, and you know, I had to. There was a couple times where I realized that, like, I made Artzol, who is one of my favorite characters to write, just incredibly difficult to like. Right. So I kind of had to go through and change some stuff around. And I only just recently found out that the uh, the web the software that I used to um, uh, take it from a word document and make it an ebook uh, decided that it wanted to make its own changes on a few like all of the words with apostrophes ended up with quotation marks. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a stylistic choice.
1: Right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> that can yeah. That, having worked with. PDF makers and things like that in the past. I understand and sympathize. So when, when um, you are, I guess, working on this, uh, did you always plan for it to stretch into a, a series of books? Was it something where you thought, I have one story to tell, and then it kind of came about, you thought, no, there's more to add? Or was it always kind of a thing where you thought, okay, I'm going to write multiple stories out of this, and they're going to stretch to different books and different ideas?
0: Well, it, the, I decided to make this a trilogy uh, about halfway through writing the first one. What I had initially done, like I said, when I was, I started working on this in high school, just as a way to kind of, when I was alone, I would write short stories. And I ended up building this universe through those. And obviously the high school version of it I tweaked because it was crap. But that was uh, the base structure for what I ended up. So I knew that I was going to... I've always written in this world here in some way or another. Um, But when I decided on the story that I really wanted to tell and kind of had it mapped out at least in my head and knew the characters... I was originally thinking, I'll just write this in one book and see how it goes. And I got about halfway through where I wanted uh, the the story for the first, you know, for what became the first book. And I was looking at it, and uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is already like 50,000 words, and I'm not, you know, I'm maybe halfway done. And so then I kind of looked at it again with uh, my buddy who actually helped me edit it out, and uh, I paid him in a mediterranean rap so you can't beat that price (laughs) but uh when i told him where i wanted the story to go ultimately and because i like to leave my characters with enough room to breathe and kind of change and alter the story as they go because you know i like to have a firm beginning middle and end but there's a lot of you know flexibility in between where maybe the 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 who does it can change based on how the characters end up evolving throughout the story and when we got when we were having our meeting i realized like well two books is is possible but i really have an idea for how i want the story to end and to do it justice i think i'm i would need to do either like you know that would be like a 500 bit part of the second book or maybe i should just make it a, a third book so at this point we're looking at a trilogy but depending on what happens it may end up being a tetralogy right
1: okay all right well, okay, so the other, I guess, kind of the final question I guess I would ask at this stage is, are you, do you, and this is more from the standpoint of the, my other podcast that we do, but is this something that came out of role-playing that you were doing, or is this just something that came out of your reading of different stories or different, you know, like the fantasy genre, I know a lot of people get influenced by D and D and other games that they've played in the past. So was this something that kind of came about because (laughs) of that, or is that just not related at all?
0: No, actually, um, in a yeah, um, when I was fifteen is when I started Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, we were playing Ravenloft. Right, and it was it was my uncle uh, who got me into it, and he was obviously you know about fifteen years older than me, and what inspired me to write in fantasy at all was just sitting there before I even made a character and watching their DM, whose name was Rayton, and he had you know, he went so above and beyond of what a DM normally would do he had a map, that he had it all mapped out he had dialogues written for the characters that he was going to be doing not that he was a regular, but you know for whoever they met was obviously him and uh, the one I was there was, uh, the first one, they had met like Uh, you know, a big boss of some sort. I don't remember, but they ended up with, uh, you know, 25 minute dialogue and just kind of chatting. And I was like, wow, this is like, I was riveted and I had no former experience with Dungeons and Dragons at that point. And that's when I knew that was that, that alone was something I wanted to get involved in though. Admittedly, it has been very hard to find a steady group of people that also have a similar schedule to your own that will do it. Um, (laughs) I know that one. (laughs) But that's what made me, uh, or at least kind of my first taste into really, really liking fantasy, because I had only read Tolkien at that point. I wasn't super into the genre in any sense. And uh, that kind of opened that door. And I'd already written a couple short stories that I guess would be considered fantasy or just regular nonfiction. Um, And that kind of opened the door to where, like, fantasy is a whole world where I can... Literally be a god, (laughs) and you know, like, well, now unicorns are here because why not? And you know, magic can exist, so that was for as a writer, that was very appealing. And uh, you know, I also paid, played the game. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Pendragon.
1: I know a little bit about it, yeah,
0: yeah, that's a really fun game if you can get people because you that's done over generations, you know, you're always you're almost always human, and uh. (laughs) It's just like any other game where you uh, you have classes and warriors and, you know, barbarians and this and that, but you can start off as one character, and by the time that the, you know, the full campaign ends or, you know, you guys finish it up, you could be seven generations into that character's family, and that's why it's so important to have a family in that game, or else you just have to create a new character, because people die left and right, and you end up you'll sometimes end up playing two characters because your son will be of an age and you want to bring him along because you know any d2 role could be your last right uh, and so that, as well as like I said just reading into real history and uh, historical fiction was uh, a pretty big way in how I knew I wanted to set up my world because even though I wanted it fantasy, I wanted it to seem like something that w- could only happen in a fantasy world. I mean, obviously, you know, there's exceptions because there's, uh, there's dog people and there's people riding pairs into battle. But for the overall, like, story, I wanted it to be something that was like, yeah, this is, uh, you know, these people are believable and this this is relatively in the realm of what is possible and some of it seems fantastical, but there's also some of, you know, a lot of it also has a rational explanation. And I I mean, so that was... That was the biggest thing, as well as, um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, M.C. Scott. She wrote a a tetralogy about the Boudicca, and um, while reading that, I kind of got a real feel for how I wanted to write certain scenes and how I wanted to kind of depict my main character, Rebecca. I didn't want to just... I feel like writing for a woman is always really difficult for any writer writing of the opposite gender, I should say, at least believably. Right. So when I read hers, I thought it was, you know, a really good chance to kind of see how a woman would write a strong woman. And so I, you know, I didn't copy her style, but I certainly tried.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, I think with that, um, we're, going to end for today but uh, i just wanted to give you a chance to plug various things including your book and of course the podcast
0: uh absolutely yes the book is the dead letters by dg longwell it is uh only available through amazon on the kindle ebook so if you have the kindle app or you own a kindle you can download it its three ninety nine, typically However, I am planning on putting it for free here in about the next month when Amazon gives me the option to do that once more. Um, the podcast that I host is called The Glenn and Dean Show, and it is my co-host, Dean Zarbaugh, who uh, owns all the gear and is also a comedian like myself in the Cleveland area. We like to get on an array of guests from history podcasters such as yourself, uh, to authors, to other comedians. Uh, so And that is available on iTunes or glennandine.com You can follow me on Twitter at, at GlennLongwell89 or Facebook is just uh, GlennLongwell and I will be the one doing stand-up as my background. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of others. I'm from Avon Lake, Ohio, which is in the Cleveland area. So that if that helps you find me, don't stalk me, though, please. Um. And yeah, that's, that is all I got. We're in the midst of working on our own history podcast. So if you want to stay up to tune on that, you can follow the, uh, the Glenn and Dean show at at Glenn and Dean show on Twitter or Glenn and Dean show on Facebook.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks Glenn. I appreciate you coming along for today and, uh, I appreciate your time.
0: I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
1: No problem. And uh, as always, everyone, uh, you can always reach me at the welshhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. And as well, you can find all the things that we do at distractionsmedia.com. And next week, we're going to dive right into the 7th century as we discuss the political machinations of various welsh kingdoms against the uh, saxons and anglicans in that era Uh, until next time everyone take care bye this has been a distractions media production for more information you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com